Hi everyone, you're listening to the Action Is, an EWB podcast featuring socio-technical professionals who are changing the engineering profession and the world so that all people and living things can thrive. EWB Australia acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past, present and emerging and know that this land was never ceded. We respect their stories, their wisdom and knowledge systems and their ongoing deep connection to land, water and community. Hello and welcome to The Actioneers. My name is Melanie Audrey from Engineers Without Borders Australia. Today I have two special guests with me, Chris Chikunta and Milda Pladaite. Chris is the Vice President of the International Renewable Energy Systems, Inc. Chris is a United Nations Affiliated Technical Reviewer a national delegate at the World Federation of Engineering Organizations and served as an appointed trustee at the Imperial College Union Trustee Board, member of the Trustee Board Governance Committee, amongst other things. Welcome, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. And Milda represents the Institution of Civil Engineers at the World Federation of Engineering Organizations, Young Engineers and Future Leaders Committee, where she set up a global young engineers working group on SDG. G13. She led the preparation of the COP26 joint statement of international youth organizations and presented it with the working group volunteers to the party delegates. Welcome, Milda. Hello, thank you. Milda, you and I met just last week, actually. Um, but I met your colleague Michelle a few weeks earlier via email when your group approached EWB representing the World Federation of Engineering Organizations and the Young Engineers Working Group on Climate Action. And um, Michelle was offering or hoping that EWB would sign the COP26 joint youth statement. We were thrilled to sign the statement. It was just really clear, really powerful and aligned with our mission and our values. And I was so inspired by the work of your group that I asked somebody to come on the podcast and you've introduced me to Chris. So I'm just delighted to have you both here. And I'd love to start as we do with a bit about your story. I mean, you're clearly young people who are leaders in your field. How did you come to be advocating so strongly and effectively for climate action? Yeah. So a little bit about my background and my story, which didn't, I didn't think that it will lead to to leading this working group. So I am from Lithuania where I graduated school in Vilnius and I always was more interested in history, literature. I graduated art and music school so far from engineering. But when I was at 12th grade, I went to visit my friends who were studying engineering in in the United Kingdom. And I was so impressed by what we were studying by the university that I had no doubts that I have to apply for that one university to engineering. And civil engineering was the closest to my heart. It is a very interesting to study engineering because it's challenging. I don't remember other reasons which led me to choose engineering, but I clearly remember that I thought it's challenging and this is why I want to study this. (laughs) Such a change from literature and music through to a STEM career path. That's an extraordinary switch. Exactly. But I never regret it. And um, I'm always very happy to speak with students, with uh, children who are thinking what to study. And I always advocate for engineering career because it's so broad, so diverse. With engineering degree, you can more easily even go and study finance later if you're interested. And what I've noticed that the STEM skills, the technical skills, which I've learned are always valued in every company I worked for. Thanks, Milda. And what about you, Chris? Yeah, so for me, I think the inspiration came at a very early age. So I was born in Nigeria. It's uh, in a small city called Lagos in the West African coasts. And I had my early education also in Nigeria. So the uh, desire to be an engineer came from just looking around. Um, uh, So I'll tell a story. So there was one time I had just come out of primary school and then my dad and I went to the Ministry of Education 
to go do some sort of processing for my secondary education. So we got into a lift. It was the first time I had left the part of the city that wasn't really so developed to go to a place where you've got like a 12-story building. So we got into an elevator and it took us all the way to the top. And I was like, God, I want to be able to operate the elevator myself. Of course, my dad let me do a bit of touching, but he was also careful to make sure we got to the place quite on time. So when I saw all that and looked around and saw the things that could be potentially built by by people, I started to ask my dad what what sort of profession would build this kind of things. And that started the whole excitement around engineering and specifically civil engineering. In Nigeria, though, the part of the industry that paid you a lot for work done is the oil and gas. So by the time I was old enough to make a decision, I started thinking more oil and gas. I got uh, introduced to volunteering very early through the Nigerian Society of Engineers and had the opportunity to lead the Young Engineers Forum in Nigeria for four years, where I also got nominated to represent Nigeria at the World Federation of Engineering Organizations. It's been almost clear from the start that I was going to be an engineer. And what led me to this point, I would say, was the opportunity that I got from leaders at the World Federation of Engineering Organizations to facilitate the global stakeholders' engagement for youth integration around the world. So this led me to the Middle East, in Kuwait, to Peru, uh, in South America, and to, to Europe, Rome, and just moving around and seeing the inequities that, you know, coming from Africa, going to the Middle East, and then coming up to Europe and traveling the world, just made me see that there's a huge opportunity for youth integration in industry, both from the perspective of young engineers, young scientists looking to make a difference, and also from least developed countries, particularly where there's quite a lot of gap to potential in, you know, things that could potentially be built. So that was that was what led me to this point. In terms of career, I worked in the oil and gas most of my career, but just recently transitioned into the renewable energy industry because I see a strong need for the change in how we assess and utilize energy and I'm really very passionate about driving discussion and that change whenever I get the opportunity. So this is what keeps me up at night. This is what I'm passionate about now. Chris, I'm interested in how you've transitioned from oil and gas to renewables and wondering whether your experience initially has been invaluable for informing the work that you do now? Were there any conflicts of interest that you had working in in the fossil fuel industry? Yeah, so I think that's a fantastic question, uh, Melanie. So one thing I had the opportunity to see in the oil and gas is I worked in difficult environments. I worked in the Niger Delta in Nigeria for uh, the rest of my, uh, my career, most of it. And one of the things that I saw was... There's a lot of potential that you could build working in the oil and gas. So the reason why it was easy for me to transition to the oil and gas was the the growth opportunities that I had, the exposure to business management that I had. And it's not at the local level, but global, working with a multinational. And I, I also had a lot of experience with business excellence practices, with energy economics, aside the technical side of things. So with that sort of foundation, it was easy for me to transition. Now, from an ethical perspective, I would say I had also a lot of respect for the ethics that we had in the oil and gas. However, when I looked around and saw the impacts of legacy decisions that have been made by oil and gas companies across board, it it gave me cause to worry as an individual. And I thought there were things that could potentially have been done better by the industry. For instance, if the industry started thinking a bit earlier about the energy transition, transition and uh, talk more about how to manage the impact of our operations in in the coastal regions of Africa, specifically the Niger Delta. I think there will be a lot more decisions that would have been useful in those regions. So you see a sort of dilemma there for me. So I started thinking, okay, what, what can I do as an individual to 
you know, to to improve the situation of things both locally and internationally. And that's uh, what led me to that transition. And I also felt I could do a whole lot more myself. And I'll tell you the reason. So in Nigeria specifically, the best heads that you've got in the country are drawn to the oil and gas because that's where the pay is, the big box, uh, right? So a lot of the guys who graduated with, say, first class, very high, uh, second class opera degrees actually drawn into the oil and gas. And as a result of that, the best, you know, technical experts that you've got, the, the, the smartest guys in the, in the country work in the oil and gas. And I felt if we have massive talent pool in the oil and gas, not leaving to push the renewable side of things forward, then we're going to not meet up as a country and, and as a world as we go towards the climate targets and climate action. And, and I felt I could do more just moving away from the oil and gas. I've taken a massive knock on my salary. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm happy to do this. This is this is what I'm passionate about and uh, I'm, no regrets whatsoever. Yeah. Well, I think that that sort of comes down to where your ethics and your values are. And so Milda, um, just going back to you for a moment, you know, you left sort of the arts and you moved into civil were there have you ever had a role where your ethics have been compromised or where you've learned something about your ethics from a role that you've uh, had in your career well I think it's ethics no I didn't have to compromise but for example what I've learned and I'm still learning but with growing responsibilities you sometimes need to decide and take actions whether you cannot guarantee a hundred percent whether it will be the right thing to do or not so sometimes it's difficult but with growing responsibilities you need to take decisions which will only in in the future will see whether it was the right thing to do or not but it doesn't compromise ethical behavior but it's more about what responsibility do we have, for example, in in terms of contributing with the climate action and sustainability? Well, I might use that as a segue to talk about, you know, at the time that we're recording this, COP26 has just wrapped up. The conference sought to address that climate change is the greatest risk facing us all. The results from the conference have not been as effective as what we might have hoped. And so I'm wondering with the the joint statement and the movement of young socio-technical professionals who got behind that, what you were hoping to achieve with the joint statement and, and how did that go at COP26 in Glasgow? Okay. I think it was a great start. So it was the first statement of its kind where we brought global young engineers community with global young professionals in finance in policy making to work together to prepare and agree on what are the objectives which we believe are the most critical. We uh, got experience how to present this COP parties to the member states and to see what is the role of our young professionals community and the biggest question is how we can rather not challenge the country because I believe that the perception is moving towards that it's seen as a global challenge and more and more countries believe it is important to, to have a climate um, action agenda very high on the, on the political objectives. But the question is how we can add positive value to this, how young professionals, young engineers can do that. And COP26 was a very good start, but it was only a start. It seemed to me that there were a number of youth delegations to Glasgow from different sort of uh, sectors, but there wasn't directly an incorporation of youth, youthful voices in the negotiations. My understanding is that the youth were actually not in, in the mix where the decisions were being made. Did you feel excluded? Did you feel like your voice and what this joint statement stood for, it was welcomed by people who had the decision to to cast a vote in a particular direction? Yeah. So I would answer that question by saying of what Milda said. So 
one of the things I would say came out clearly uh, from the joint statements is the 12 policy recommendations that we made. And maybe also to give a sense of the organizations that were involved in pulling that together, Milda leading the charge. We had the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Youth NGO, it's called Yongo. We had the World Federation of Engineering Organizations, Global Young Engineers Working Group on Climate Change with Milda Leeds. And that has more than 100 countries, young engineers involved, and also more than 30 million young professionals in the in the World Federation of Engineering Organizations. We had the United Nations Major Group for Children and Youth. It's the Science Policy Interface Platform. We had the World Bank Group Global Youth Climate Network. We had members of the United Nations Secretary General Youth Advisory Board on Climate Change and, and a few delegates, specifically one from Latvia, who also was very active in the engagements. His name is Kirill. Now, to pull that back to the question, we had to of policy recommendations. And when we compare the outcome from the COP and the policy recommendations, there's a huge gap to what the youth are saying we want to have and the outcome. One could argue, just based on that, that even though youth attended or young professionals attended, our voice is yet to be heard. So the whole conversation for us was from the beginning we're thinking, how can we provide a unified voice in the COP discussions that is focused on climate change mitigation, adaptation and resilience, and also pull inclusive and meaningful policy making and implementation into the conversation with a focus on how it affects young people because youths and young professionals and children would be the most impacted by climate change. I think one thing that we realized just, I think it was also a pleasant surprise, I would say, was that we could actually within the negotiations, walk up to the heads of delegations, the leaders of the constituencies, global leaders specifically, to demand what we want and put a bit of pressure. We had the opportunity to engage the COP president, Alok Sharma, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, John Kerry, the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Change at the COP, Nigel Toppins, high-level champion, who was overwhelmingly supportive of every of the policy recommendations we had and even did some presentations both on social media and across the conversations that we had. We had an engagement with Franz Timmermans, the Vice President of the European Commission, uh, Zach Goldsmith, the UK Environment Minister. It, It was anyone that had a potential contribution or even a voice at the conference, we made sure to have an engagement or try to have an engagement with them. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of things, you know, when you listen to the negotiation and listen to the engagement, you realize that the countries that are involved also have their dilemmas, big dilemmas. I think bringing together this strong push that we've got, understanding that this is an existential threat for us as a species, to also harmonizing it with the dilemmas of the different participating countries that is very, very key in in the conversation. So as a summary, it's not anywhere near where we want to be, but uh, we're, I think, in the right direction. Coming out of the COP, we, I think we are more connected as, as, as youths, uh, not just the guys who started the writing of the joint statement, but even a wider group of, of youths and representatives and leaders. And we're thinking, okay, what can we do to improve our next outing? So we're doing things like sensitization, just so that youths will understand the workings of the UNFCC, Triple C, and understand how COPs are organized and the discussions that lead up to COP. Because if we understand how the system works, then we are able to basically have a more meaningful conversation when we come out to subsequent COPs. So we're focusing on, you know, doing uh, a lot of the things that youths will do, like doing simulations of actual COP negotiations amongst ourselves, just to get us ready and abreast to have those conversations. We also uh, share some of the things that we've learned from the COP26, basically around lobbying, beyond just activism, but also going beyond resilience to have conversations to say, hey, we understand the dilemmas that you're facing as constituencies, as countries, but less dilemma into the perspective of our existential threats and take this conversation forward from there.
I'm in absolute amazement and um, overwhelm at, at how incredible you two are, truly actioneers. When I was watching and listening to the presentations at COP26, I, I actually wondered why there were presentations. I mean, it was lovely to hear David Attenborough. It was incredible to watch the speech from the, I think she's the president of Barbados and others, obviously with the exception of the Australian delegation. But what I wondered was why why do we have all this speech making? This seems to be such a waste of time because actually they're not saying anything that we don't already know. And so I'm wondering if at the next COP, if that was dispensed of, how do you think time could be better spent so that the outcomes and the voices of the youth who are the ones that are going to be carrying the burden of the crisis are better listened to and the recommendations are incorporated in the outcomes of the next COP? So one of the things that we learned, personally I learned in the COP, is the power of voices. And um, basically hearing someone like David Attenborough speak and hearing, you know, all the world leaders speak and hearing them say the things that we already know, but more importantly, reminding the constituencies and the heads of delegations and the parties of the need to take action, I think, was very pivotal to getting some of the gains that were gotten at the conference. I think it is important to have those strong voices in the room pushing for action. And it's also good to see that, you know, some of these leaders are saying the things that the youths have been saying. And a lot of, you know, policymakers who understand the existential threats beyond just their dilemmas have been saying. So I think those speeches actually had an impact, in my opinion, and I believe strongly that there are things that could happen better in terms of focusing the negotiation beyond just the speeches as well. So I'll give an example. So for instance, as an African, it's easy to relate with the secondary dilemma beyond the primary dilemma that we've got, which is a global consensus to limit climate change and transition to cleaner energies very quickly. So the dilemma for least developed countries is that there's always that question of how quickly can least developed countries transition to clean energy without exacerbating the already very limited access to life's most basic needs. You need to be out in some of these least developed countries to understand their situation. So when they come to the COP and they say, hey, we want to we limit climate change. We understand the need for this. But if we do anything too quickly, guys who don't have food, who don't have water, who don't have sanitation, would basically not exist. So it's an existential threat already for us in least developed countries today. So when they talk about their situations, then you can pull that into the conversations and you have a more inclusive dialogue that actually solves the problem from the roots, for instance. So, I mean, there's so many things that could potentially be said, but I can maybe pass on the mic to Milda and and just hear her thoughts as well. I think... And that is my idea, which I hope that will also be taken forward later. But COP27 negotiations is one part, very important, two weeks. But the main work will be happening before. Correct. So we have one year. And what I already suggested to Chris, we discussed that the most critical is to have a very close connection with those who have authority to to make those decisions. But at the same time, understand that quite often youth wants to negotiate and and ask for for the countries to listen to what youth aims for, what objectives they are asking for countries to adopt. But I still believe that we should take the approach seeing how we can support the countries to reach those objectives. So rather than asking, for example, to to fund renewable energy, stop funding fossil fuels projects, we should more ask how we can contribute. So for example, if one country focus on investing in electric vehicles and hydrogen and alternative fuels, 
we would uh, need to ask maybe there will be a lack of engineers or professionals in those fields. And then what is the role of our global uh, young professional platform? How we can contribute that we have enough of upskilled professionals in those fields? So I think that it, this uh, approach adds even more value. Both are important. First approach is to demand for countries to adopt. And second approach is to see how we can support countries in adopting and reaching sustainability objectives. Your reply correlates with the way that Engineers Without Borders works. So we have a technology development approach, which has sitting under it human-centered engineering philosophy. And so the work that we do in the Asia-Pacific is responding to communities' needs, but not in a takeover way, in a capacity building way. So we have pro bono partners and we do a call out to the engineering sector for field professionals. And so field professionals will go in country, live with the people, work with the people, ideate with them, come up with solutions and ultimately aim to basically do themselves out of a job by skilling up, you know, the local workforce to take over the work so that they step away. And if I think of climate change and what you're talking about and that type of approach at scale, theoretically, and and hopefully you could you could create a more equitable response to you know the climate inequity by by doing such a thing in the face of a potential skill sh- shortage in in one discipline or one sector indeed so so if i just add to that melanie so one of the biggest learnings that i got aligns with what milda has said as well is it's important to also listen to the dilemmas and the arguments of the national parties that may appear not to be pushing as proactively for climate action as we would want them to. As young engineers, as young professionals, the reason why it's important to listen is then you can not just provide a reasonable challenge, but also provide a helping hand. So I'll give an example. So the Chinese delegation, one of their arguments have been that they need to continue to meet the manufacturing needs of the world as a matter of national security for China. And why this is a matter of national security is the only way to keep the over 1.4 billion Chinese nationals out of the above the poverty line and consequently off the streets in protests and totally disrupting the policy or polity is by doing this. And if you scratch beneath the surface and have that conversation, you'd see they just keep reeling out points and examples of how this is actually the case in China or with China. Now, listening to this, the question that we ask is, what can young professionals in China and Asia Pacific do to push for climate action without significantly impacting up to a point of disrupting the polity in China. So that's an example. Another example of one of the guys who were pushing for less, I don't want to use the word proactive, but ambitious, less ambitious goals is Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia said one of the arguments, they said as long as there is demand for oil and gas, they will continue to meet that demand. And and the reason why they say this is it's almost like it's the mainstay of the economy for Saudi Arabia. If they pull that up, then they all, they will go into poverty. And I mean, looking at it face value, it will look as though, hey, these guys are not listening to all the things that we're saying. But if you just scratch beneath the surface and say, if all the gas plants in the world are shut down today, if all the oil plants in the world are shut down today, my family here, for instance, in Edmonton, Canada, and a lot of families will not make it out of the winter, you know? So when you see that beyond just, oh, this is a Saudi Arabia problem to say, this is a problem that affects me as an individual, then the question you want to ask will be, hey, what can we do to help you make the transition? And then you can also ask more questions. So uh, looking at countries that have oil and gas as their mainstay, they already have a plan of what their their, uh, energy mix is going to look like in 2040, 2050, and maybe 2060, which is, for instance, the commitment that was made by Saudi Arabia. So 
Do you have such a plan? Is there a way we can learn across borders to implement or at least develop a plan to reduce your full dependence on oil and gas or at least create some policy direction or plan that will help you transition to cleaner energy fuels. So in in my mind, I think as young engineers, as young professionals, it is very, very important to basically look inwards first and say, what can I do to push for net zero to not just net zero, but for climate action? And then what can we do to help all of these countries, starting from our country, the ambitions that they've set and also push for more ambitious targets? So I'll give an example, and this is really important. So I took a pay cut personally from my I would say promising career in an oil and gas to go to renewable energy. I could have decided to stay, but I saw the need to take action. And based on this choice, I I, I took a concession and the concession was my remuneration at home. We're reducing uh, our carbon emissions by installing solar panels to achieve net zero power supply. So that way, at least there's some action that I'm taking as an individual. And I have a clear plan to reduce my heating and and transport to net zero, hopefully by end of 2022. That's individual. The choice of the food that we eat and our lifestyle also needs to transition to greener and healthier decisions, right? So until we look inward first and make those micro changes and micro successes, there's very limited growth and, and would I say progress that will make towards the wider macro decisions and targets. So what I wanted to say in response to that is how empowering your reframing of action is. And actually in, in a webinar that EWB hosted last year, we had a wonderful First Nations speaker, Arabella Douglas, and she encouraged everybody to go within, much as you're saying, because until you've gone within, you can't go out. And certainly you shouldn't be going out into community until you have interrogated yourself and reconciled with yourself. a question for our young engineers when it comes to influence. So let's just say we've we've made micro changes ourselves. So how does a young engineer in the workplace who has passion and conviction about climate change or any social or environmental justice issue that they care about, how do they influence their colleagues or senior decision makers in their organisation to start creating meaningful change on those issues that they care about? I think the most important is to understand what you're passionate about. And it's not difficult to to make influence. You start from the small changes. And then when when people, colleagues around you see that it adds positive value, quite many people also want to join. And this is how the influence grows. The key is just to understand whether it's really you're passionate about this. And I think for the climate action, most young people and in general, everyone is is usually interested in. And and then start from the small changes, speak with, with colleagues who have similar values, discuss this, enjoy the positive contribution you are making, and it will be only uh, be growing. Then. And in your experience, you know, you're working at a global level. How did you get there? What steps did you take to be, you know, organizing uh, a global statement and then be representing millions of of young engineers and and technical professionals at Glasgow? I think it's it's, it's not difficult at all, again, I think, because uh, it started by seeing that opportunity that at World Federation of Engineering Organizations have a unique platform to connect the global community of, uh, of young engineers. 
then how I start engaging with United Nations young professionals. Also, very simple. There were only a few emails, few conversations, and it started growing. Same with uh, GYCN young professionals from uh, World Bank Group. Few emails, a few meetings. We had the same vision, the same values. The question was how we can support each other to make a better impact. It's just more about trying to reach people. And if you have that idea which you believe, it's quite simple to find the opportunities and find the people who have the same ideas. You just need to, to take action. And then it starts evolving. So what happened with this working group, there were quite many volunteers who probably were adding even more value than I was. So this was a great thing to see that it was growing and it was useful. Recently, we've been working with Marlene Kanga, who I, I know you both know on the new global engineering competencies, which of course have just been approved. And the profiles for the first time now directly reference the UN SDGs. With those competencies now signed off and probably poised to be rolled out, do you think that's enough to encourage a a profession which is traditionally quite conservative and slow moving to take the urgent action that is the language and need of the climate crisis? So I'll take a stab at that one. One of the things that we usually look at is the needs, first of all, of the location where the rollout is being done. And then we go out from there. So I think one of the things that is important is to sit back and say, hey, what are the things that are problems that we have within, maybe not problems, but what are the opportunities that we have within our area or within our location that we already have solutions and how quickly can we deploy those solutions? That way you knock off all the front end development side of things and you can very easily expedite action towards the actual execution. So that's step one. The second step is, and I think this is one of the conversations that I had with uh, a lady, a visiting professor from the Royal Academy of Engineering last week. Her name is uh, Don, Don Bonfield. So the question is, how can we do cross-learning so that we can pull in some of the things that have been done in other locations to that are either directly replicable in our location or that we can just tweak a bit to make it replicable. So if we've got that very good collaborative efforts going there, then there's a huge opportunity for moving faster. So we also knock off a lot of the front-end development and engineering side of things, and we can go straight into execution, of course, looking at the wider framework to non-technical risks as well. Then the last bit that I think is very important is the soft side of things. I mean, I'll say Milda does all effortlessly. It doesn't come as effortless to some of us, right? We have to try to have connects. Most of the time, the connects may not even work as we expect them to work. But uh, I'm learning quite a lot from her in how to engage meaningfully. So it's actually developing soft skills to be able to go beyond the technical to understanding value propositions, understanding energy economics, and understanding how to more easily deploy some of these solutions that we've got. The biggest bottlenecks we've got in deployment is bureaucratic. It's more around policy development. It's more around uh, systems and structures and how to quickly go through those systems and structures like a, a hot knife through cheesecake, right? So how do we navigate the policy directions in such a way that we move very quickly? And you do that by effective lobbying, knowing who to talk to, knowing what their needs are, knowing what their expectations are, and meeting those needs as quickly as we possibly can, and then we can expedite action more quickly. So technical understanding of what the issues are in our in our own space, number one. Number two, having a good understanding of what other solutions are available around the world that we can easily replicate. And number three, understanding what the policy environment looks like, development, and more importantly, implementation, and how to navigate all of those, 
having good conversations with the stakeholders involved and basically coming out very quickly at the other side. I can also add, I think it's quite easier to add value if you if you know exactly what you're contributing to. Competences vary significantly depending on what country we are talking about. So we have Yankee Engineers Professionals Association in Uruguay, the question, how we can add value to the climate action? What value we can add globally? But will the value will be tangible? Probably not at this stage. So the question is what we can do at the national level to start. And then it also adds value to a global level, small but positive change. Okay. So um, in Uruguay, the question was what government is investing in what sustainable sectors they are investing. And we did the research. It will be electric vehicles. So then we have this platform where we can learn from, from different countries, from engineers working in different countries. And we had learned that China, Chinese Association, who is also one of our members, have a great initiative for electric electric vehicles. So when our working group connected engineers with Chinese and engineers committee, so they could start sharing the knowledge. But then again, we also need to bring young engineers um, into the policymaking. So they are exposed to this. And uh, we connected them and had a meeting with Uruguay government representatives who also were happy to, to include young engineers and also include them in the initiatives, what the national government is doing and investigate more how the young engineers can contribute to those initiatives for the uh, sustainability sectors what the government is investing to. So it's it's a simple example, but I think it's value and still think that it's not difficult. It's just the most important is to connect with the right people and have that idea what you're trying to achieve and also align this into what is happening at the national government level and at global level. And then you always have a foundation that what you're doing is in line so that you're not working in silo on your small initiatives, which actually are not in line with anything what is happening in that government. Yeah. So so another story, because there's so many stories that could potentially be told, right? So aside the one from Uruguay and China there, there's uh, the one that I think really affects me personally. So in Nigeria today, there's a massive drought in the area, which is like the northern part of the country. The major lakes that we have in that region is drying out. It's called Lake Chad. It's drying out and it's forcing people to migrate from the Sahel area into the greener areas in the savannah and in the rainforest that is in the southern part of the country or the middle belt. Now, with those migration, you have clashes because the guys who are in the middle belt are predominantly farmers. The guys coming from the uh, northern part of the country are predominantly headers. Now, when you've got a massive movement moving down south, then you'd have, you know, cattle going into farms and totally destroying the crops that the guys in the middle belt, for instance, have. And as a result of that, they don't have food to eat. You have scarcity of food. From scarcity of food, there's uh, inflation, increase in insecurity and all that kind of uh, stuff that comes from uh, massive migration that way. What we did, which happened by chance, was I was out in Kuwait having a conversation with the Kuwait delegation and seeing how we can have youths integrated into industry more. And one of the projects that they were working on was a kind of hydroponic solution that works very well in the deserts. I mean, real desert sand and nothing, just sand out in the desert. So they shared that solution and that solution is being replicated in the northern parts of Nigeria where you you have those massive droughts that is making those places, you know, as dry as you'd have in the Middle East. So 
it's seeing it something that is, that is working somewhere else. It may not be the exact same situation, but you see that it's replicable in your own local environment or in your own situation or country, and then just copying shamelessly, just pick up the solution and replicate. And if you need to take tweak the solution a bit, by all means, go ahead and do that. And I mean, just imagine if that hydroponic solution can be replicated in such a way that it's across the entire area. You're going to stop the massive migration of people from the north to the south, and they, they will be happy to stay where they've they've built their culture, they've built their livelihood for many years, because most people don't want to migrate because of existential threats. Yeah, and it's aligned with the way that we use the word technology. So we talk about um, believing in a world where technology benefits all. We're actually not talking about the shiny stuff, not necessarily. We're talking about it could be something that's endemic to one area and it's taken given a slight twist and and put back, or perhaps it's sort of taken, modified and introduced elsewhere. So there's multiple ways of viewing technology, but certainly the example that you've given is, is the way that we think of the use of the word technology in terms of our organisations. Yeah, and maybe to also touch on the other question you asked about how young engineers can influence within their companies. It's, it's in my opinion, there's so many little things that can be done. So the first thing is there needs to be an awareness of the things that can be done. So if young engineers, if young professionals, first of all, sit back and say, hey, can I get a list of, say, 10 solutions? Even if I have only two, can I get together a number of young professionals, young engineers, youths like myself, to pull together a long list of possible solutions that are applicable to our location, from low-cost options to even the ones that require significant financial support, right? And then I think most people will be willing and happy to contribute some some part of the organizational time and resources to develop those solutions and implement them. Most leaders that I've had the opportunity of having a conversation with are looking for opportunities to, if not even for care for the world and care for creation and care for the, 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 the climate crisis, just for the reputation, they want to do something for ESG, right? So if you put the options on the table to say, hey, we've got this opportunity to plant, say, 100 trees in some area in Sydney, just as an example, let's do it. And how much does it cost? It's cost only, say, $1,000. From the bottom line, it's usually not a lot for, say, big corporations to cough out $1,000 for that kind of solution. It's good for the PR anyways, yeah? So it's it's important to, first of all, have a long list, if possible, of potential solutions, understand what value means to the organization you work for, and tie those solutions to value. The moment you're able to do that, then it's a no-brainer. Everybody wants to be part of a winning team, so they just give their support to it and make it work. Yeah, thank you. In Australia, Engineers Without Borders was one of the co-founders of the Australian Engineers Declare Climate and Biodiversity Crisis Movement. So it's the Declare movement and there's movements similar to this in the UK, in Canada, in Europe, sort of all over the world. And although in many ways we would consider the launch and, and the growing movement of professionals' success, I think there's about 2,000 signatures on that declaration. So it's a 12-point declaration. That was sort of phase one of, of the campaign and phase two was around taking action. So first it was about being visible and and you know, making a statement. And the second was, okay, so what are we going to do about it? But when I looked at the um, peak bodies registration list, I think there's a hundred thousand engineers in Australia. So 2000 have signed the sector's leading climate change declaration. So there's a lot of work to be done here in Australia. There's a lot of influence that's, that's needed. And I, I greatly appreciate the advice on, on how to take those steps, you know, towards the kind of outcomes that we're all hoping for. At this point in the conversation, I'd love to talk about hope. Hope doesn't come from 
positive circumstance, not usually or if ever, and it's not guaranteed a positive outcome. So I'm wondering after COP26, what's your position in relationship to hope? Do you have hope or what gives you hope or what sustains you in, in this work that you're doing, which is so incredibly important? I can start. It's okay. With this regard, I don't think much about the hope. I think it's about the action. What to hope for? If, if everyone can can add something to it, whether smaller or, or bigger thing, or, but I don't think that we need to hope anything, but just uh, rather think what we can do. Chris, for you, does hope resonate for you or is it action that you identify with? Yeah, so it's a, it's so it's I, I wear different hats at different times. So when I wear the hat of someone coming out of one of the least developed countries, I I I, I need a lot of hope. I, and and the reason why I need that hope is just looking around and seeing what's going on as a result of climate change and some other factors. You need to be hopeful to be able to drive from that perspective. And and the reason why this is important for me to hope is when when I look at the situation, for instance, in all of Africa, Africa contributes less than 3% of, of GHG emissions globally. And if you look historically, the more far back you look, the less it is. And it's just seeing that Africa doesn't contribute to this problem, but is suffering massively from the result of the of what's going on is, is quite depressing to see. So the hope is that, and of course, like you said, hope comes from situations that are not pleasurable, that are not exciting to look at. In terms of action, all I'm basically looking at is how do we start the action from an individual level? So for instance, in COP26, we had the most youth involvement, youth leaders and, and young professionals involvement in the in the whole you know, negotiation and the process that happens. That's a positive, but going on from there, the question I'm asking is, young people are going to be disproportionately affected by climate change. So we need to build our capacity very quickly and facilitate our participation in all of the conversation from policy development and implementation to contributing to actually driving meaningful action. And one of the things that we're looking at in terms of action is making the youths ready and basically understanding the whole process of lobbying and having a conversation at those massive forums. And it's not just at the world stage, but also at the local stage. What can we do to influence the negotiation basis from the different national parties before they come to the COP. So those are the things that we're looking at. And right now, everybody has gone back home to, you know, to start working that process. And we're organizing, you know, ahead of the next next COP in in Egypt and uh, in in UAE. Well, speaking to you both has definitely given me such hope. I am astounded by the work that you're doing, the complexity, the skill, your devotion. Yeah. Wow. There's just so much of what you said that is still landing for me. And I think that I'll be mulling over many of the answers over the days to come. So I'm so grateful to both of you for coming onto our podcast and and talking to us and inspiring the the next generation of young engineers. Thank you to both of you. Yeah, just so grateful for your time and your insights. Maybe we can circle back and have another conversation when we're doing COP27 and and learn more about your experience representing our industry there. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so very much for the The Action News production team is grateful to soundscape artist Julian Rausch for creating our podcast music. To learn more about this podcast and to access this episode's show notes, please visit our website, ewb.org.au forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please spread the word, like and subscribe and leave us a review. We look forward to spending time actioneering with you again during our next episode.